Welcome to the Out of Privilege podcast featuring Dr. Byron Burkhalter, where we will talk about issues of racism, white privilege, and the role they play in current affairs. Byron earned his doctorate in sociology from UCLA and has been focused on issues of race, biracial identity, whiteness, and multiracial political coalitions in U.S. history for more than 30 years. He has taught at the university level, spoken at large public rallies, and published numerous pieces on these issues. He takes an historical and sociological look at the systemic racism that the United States in particular is battling today. I'm Genevieve Haldeman, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, Out of Privilege co-founders Wendy Apperson and Byron Burkhalter talk about helping individuals embrace and embark on a journey of self-discovery on the path toward anti-racism. That starts with confronting personal complicity with white supremacy head-on in what can be a very vulnerable and shameful experience. Take a listen and let us know your perspective in the comments. There's been an explosion in the last few months of book clubs in particular, focusing on issues of race and white privilege. A lot of fantastic books that have been out for the last couple of years to guide the white people who want to do this work, really anybody who wants to do this work along the way, uh, whether it's me and white supremacy, how to be an anti-racist, uh, white privilege. There's there's just a ton of books out there that that uh, uh, people have started to read and have started to come together for these book clubs. Um, what I find interesting is that certainly with George Floyd and everything that's happened in the last few months, there have been a uh, uh, large number of groups that have popped up um, in uh, in recent times. But Wendy, you actually had an inkling of an idea more than two years ago uh, that preceded this wave. What did you see then that drove you to create the Out of Privilege working groups that are the foundation of what Out of Privilege is today? So I wish I could say it was the police brutality that is apparent and obvious to me now. It wasn't. What I was seeing in that summer, I was living in LA that summer and um, I wasn't working and I was watching a lot of the news and there was mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting. And I started reading the articles about the information they were gathering about the shooters after the fact and discovering there were two threads that seemed to be popping out very frequently, almost all of the shooters had a history of domestic violence, either towards a family member or a romantic partner. And they also had a thread of white supremacy uh, in one form or another. There's manifestos or there's group involvement or there's postings uh, on Facebook groups And those threads um, hit me kind of hard. It kept hitting me in the gut that summer. And I remember talking with Byron about it quite frequently, but that was the first part. And I decided that the biggest problem was white supremacy. And the only thing I could do about it was address it in myself. (laughs) That um, That was the only thing I had control over in that moment. And so the groups came out of a very selfish 
um, idea that I didn't want to do it alone. I wanted to take that journey with other people who also wanted to become more aware of their racism and find um, a new way of looking at things, understanding the, the hidden, but also um, then being able to activate their anti-racism. So I imagine um, not everyone is ready to do this kind of work, especially, you know, two years ago. How did you get people to join you on this very personal and very vulnerable journey? Um, and, you know, what kind of response did you get when you, when you talked to people? Did you get, did you have to ask a lot of people to, in order to get the first few to join or how did that, how did that work? I asked a lot of people repeatedly. <laughs> and uh, as it turns out, I used, um, I'm older. <laughs> I used my Facebook um, profile and um, posted that I was interested in doing this work. And that in itself was, I think, a pivotal point because that was the decision to be very public and visible about understanding that I had to do work that I wasn't going to point fingers at other people and their racism and their racist actions. I was going to uh, work on myself first and invited other people to work on themselves first. And so, yeah, I, you know, I don't have a million friends on Facebook, but I had a good handful and very few people, um, but a few awesome people stood up and they decided they wanted to take the journey with me. And how did that journey start? What did you, um, what did you do when you first got the group together? And how do you create an environment where people can be vulnerable and safe at the same time? So there was something inherent in putting together people that I already knew. Some of them I knew better than others, um, but we had that in common to start with. And I think. Um, when we think about expanding out of privileges work to uh, groups of strangers or groups of people who work together, those are different dynamics, but these people didn't know each other, uh, maybe, but they, they knew me. So we had that first step of building an intimate group. Uh, the second part was taking an oath of confidentiality. What stayed in the, what was said in the group stayed in the group. Um, and then we were able to, um, take small steps <laughs> to be vulnerable and to share our past experiences and to, um, bring transparency to the shame that's felt, the embarrassment that's felt when we realized that, um, some of our past actions and words have been incredibly hurtful to people of color. Did you have a guide that you used uh, or what was the guide that you used to, to get the group um, to consciously look at what those behaviors might be? Because as, as we have heard and talked about, you know, this is a, a system that is invisible to those it benefits. And so it can be very difficult to see the, the impact of your personal actions 
when you are are when you go through life recognizing them as invisible or not recognizing them at all and so i'm curious what guides you use to help help frame that first group yeah that's very true there are they are incredibly invisible until they're um obvious and it required learning a new vocabulary and we started out using um Layla Said's, um, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, uh, Me and My White Supremacy. She had just published a PDF online that uh, came from a course that she ran in February of 2018. And she ran it for 28 days of February. It was a leap year, or not a leap year. And um, she had a daily prompt for each day and she encouraged people to read about a particular form of microaggression or a, a concept and then journal on the prompt questions that are included in each day. And so it was a pretty intensive um, format that she was suggesting. We took it a little slower. <laughs> um, our group were busy and working jobs. And that was one of the things I wanted to respect and um, also felt it was pretty important to um, allow people to go at a slower pace to digest and really integrate the information as we read it. Um, that's one of the things I've learned from some of the other personal growth um, work that I've done is that you can often learn about a concept, but if you don't sit with it for a while, you don't end up incorporating it into your daily life and your behavior. And so taking it over a longer period of time can be super beneficial um, to making actual effective change um, in the way you're seeing a situation and the way you're uh, catching yourself <laughs> in, in the moment. Um, yeah. You're a lot more successful. And so you've been doing this work for a couple of years now. Uh, leading the group, but also personally going through your own journey. And uh, while we're going to talk to some of the other folks who've been on the group um, in a later podcast, I would love to hear any observations you've had about your journey, uh, particularly as you've brought other groups online as well. What have you learned? So I just want to clarify one thing. I'm not leading the group. I'm facilitating a space. <laughs> it was really important that I um, I appear to be facilitating the space and participating just like everybody else in the group. Um, uh, the, Byron joined this group and he became a leader of sorts. And then another of our out of privilege partners joined the group. She's an African-American woman and mother. Um, and she brought her perspective to the group as well. And that was an amazing gift that they both brought. Byron, not, not just his background, but also his academic and teaching background and expertise in this area um, and teaching it to people. So we've been pretty lucky that we've had this level of understanding around us as we go on this journey. Byron, talk about the role that you've played with this group and, um, you know, a lot of times the, the burden on black people comes from the white people who have jumped into discovery something and, you know, whatever black person they can find, they start asking these questions, which puts an added burden on that. But talk about, 
you know, the role that you play that you wanted to play and, and how that works with the group. I remember the first time I heard um, a black person say, hey, it's not up to me to explain to white people what's going on. Um, that actually wasn't that long ago, uh, the first time I heard it. And I thought, wow, where were you maybe 30 years ago? Because part of this is, you know, I was teaching race and ethnicity in Los Angeles during the um, Los Angeles uprising. Um, I had taught for 20 years, often in places like Los Altos, California, or Santa Monica, uh, California, where, you know, you were talking to a lot of not black, not brown people um, and trying to explain race. Um, I've also spent a lot of time, uh, my wife has been in the tech industry, and so a lot of the people we've known in California are people who have almost no experience with black people what, whatsoever. And so I think it just the, the way I've gone through uh, this world, I've had a lot of conversations talking with white people about race. And so it just feels like my life's work more than it feels like a burden. I completely agree that um, if you haven't chosen to do this work, the fact that um, you would put, you know, that this burden would be put on you is definitely something uh, to set a boundary on. Um, but for me, this is kind of the work I chose. And then if I'm in the group, you know, if I'm calling in, um, you know, then I've made the choice to be there. Uh, part of this is that I believe that there is a need to come together across racial identities, across uh, sexual orientations, across gender identities, across religious identities uh, in order to create a better country and a better world. And the only way to do that is with trust. And the only way to trust um, liberal white people is for them to have some time looking at their own privilege first and starting to see perspectives outside of their normal. I want to be a part of that work. And honestly, I was a part of that work before I even knew it was work. And so as you've been joining these groups and having these discussions for the last couple of years, um, what, what surprised you about the groups themselves and, and the process they were going through? I think the way in which the groups over time become each other's people is what has surprised me the most. So as this starts, I have a lot of white friends. My Facebook page doesn't look that much different than Wendy's. Um, but there's a, a point where I don't trust them on race. Um, I'd had many conversations with Wendy over the years and I'd had reasons to trust her, but there's a point at which I did not trust her about race. But then she went public on the groups and somehow that got past that, that boundary. I started to um, believe in that. And as I watched that group grow, I watched people who were 
less and less able to accept forms of racism in their life. People who were more and more able to take public stands, public actions, and become anti-racist, and in so doing, see each other within the group as a community. There was a belonging and a bond inside of those work groups um, that I wasn't really thinking about at the beginning. And I think that's been the biggest surprise. When you teach in a classroom, you, you know, will lecture for a while, give examples, but then you give assignments and you get the, the students talking to each other and you give them assignments to go and, and discover something in the world. How is sort of teaching in that classroom environment similar and different to working with these smaller groups? I think um, one of the things that is similar is that I have learned so much in classrooms from students. I've learned so much in these work groups. I've had to go through my own privilege. You know, I have places to navigate here as well. Um, Jamie, who, uh, who we referenced before, helped me see privilege that I had. Um, and so I think that happens in classrooms too. I've had 18, 19, 20 year old um, students who taught me. There was a young man I'll never forget from Rwanda um, who started explaining genocide uh, in the classroom. And I'll never forget what he said. I had students from Iceland and Los Angeles that were the same ways. Um, so I think that that learning is, is one thing. I think a second thing that is similar, and you know, it's funny because we talk about this as work in the groups and we talk about it as homework in my classroom, but it's about going and finding in your own life where these things exist. It, it's almost a treasure hunt. Um, I thought of it as collecting butterflies. Um, the way that you really come to understand what is going on is finding it outside of the group, in your own life in your own talk, in your own relationship, with your friends, with your families. Seeing it like that is when you really know what it is. Uh, and I think those things are similar. One of the differences about the group is that how the group morphs over time is always sort of up in the air. Um, what it will be six months down the road or a year down the road, if it will be at all for that long, and we've had groups now that have gone um, two years, I think. Um, and you become friends. And I still have some of my students who are my friends, but there's something quite interesting about the way that these groups connect us to each other. It's a very personal journey. And I think you find a special bond with people who go down that path with you. And I think that's that may be part of of what that experience is um, and the importance of going through it with the right group of people too, uh, where there's trust and, and uh, the ability to hold each other accountable in a way because everybody's voluntarily going to these groups. They've all signed up to do it personally and that can, it can be tough to hold each other accountable in those situations. But I'm curious for either one of you, how do you 
how do you hold each other accountable? How do you make sure that as people are going through this work, that they're honest with themselves and the people around them? So, um, it, it, it does depend, but there are these different styles. So my style is sometimes instead of confronting somebody directly, um, I will tell a story about, uh, United States in the 1780s. Um, or I will share some part of my own history that illustrates it. Um, we have somebody else um, in the group. Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to say names or not, but um, who will sort of turn it into how he thinks about things as a way of not being confrontational at all. Um, there's another person uh, in the group who has this quiet way of probing through and saying things that are really holding you to account, that are really just sharp, but said so gently um, that they work out. Um, Wendy oftentimes talks about other emotional journeys she had to sort of illuminate the one that she's suggesting you see in what you uh, just said. Different people have their styles. And some of those styles work better in some instances than others. And maybe we've just been lucky. Uh, but usually somebody in the group finds somebody else in the group that they can hear particularly well. And then that just sort of goes that way. I think there's a lot to be said for the connection that builds as the trust builds. And that trust comes from being vulnerable and opening up and then being able to have the permission to offer this feedback to the other people in the group. I wanted to, Byron made me remember something about the journey. Um, we, Genevieve and Byron and I have known each other a long time, 30 years. And to hear that there were things that he couldn't talk to me about because he knew that I had no understanding of that experience and how to hear it is hurtful. <laughs> that hurts that I wasn't there for him in that way for so long. You know, these people are very important in my life. And that's... I mean, I'm going to have to live that for the rest of my life, but to understand that and to understand that I hadn't been giving that to other important people in my life <laughs> also is a really hard thing to wake up with. And so there's a bit of forgiveness that comes with that in doing the work and realizing that you can bring compassion and humility and, uh, higher awareness to the next conversation. Um, but the journey's been about connection for me, and this has been in the way of connecting. So that's been key for me. Yeah. You know, I might add one other thing too, uh, which is um, I believe, and I know that there are people that come at this in different ways. I believe that... white people are going to be necessary to the political project 
um, inherent in all of this. And I have met so many of them who have so little practice. These workshops for most of them have to be a place where they can make mistakes and not feel like they're going to be just slammed for them. Now, they have to be held to account and they can't be let go, but they have to have enough of a sense that it's not in order to make them feel bad that they can that they can go on it's a, it's a delicate balance you don't hit it every time um, there are times when things are too harsh there are things when when there are times when things are not harsh enough but you're really just trying to allow them a place where they can walk out of that privilege into that connection. And that's the goal. So let's expand on that a little bit. Um, walking out of, of these vulnerable and safe spaces, what do you hope that they can do in the real world on the day-to-day -day basis? You know, what is important for them to come through on the other side of this and be able to do? So I guess ultimately, and I'm tempted not to answer this as vaguely as I'm going to answer it. I mean, eventually the idea is that we need to be able to connect with each other. And to be able to connect with each other, we have to have trust in each other. And for people who are not white, having that trust that straight white people will have your back and not just get tired and not just figure out how to connect with their family members who are targeting you. You know, trust can be a little hard to come by. In order to get to that trust, in order to get to that connection, you have to walk out of the privilege um, that has you maintaining white supremacy you have to walk out of what is really a false privilege and never was a good deal because of the people you had to give up and the things, the kind of country that you're giving up by not having that connection. Um, so that's sort of conceptually um, what it is. What it means as a practical matter is that sort of unspoken, taken for granted normalcy that counts as whiteness, where you live in segregated neighborhoods and went to segregated schools and have segregated Facebook pages. That has to change. You have to start to live with others and not continue that segregation. That's kind of the beginning of it. So Wendy, what is, what is the outcome for you? What are you hoping not just that you get, but that the people you've brought into this, onto this journey with you will, will come out the other side of the journey with. Mm. One of the hardest things that I've seen the people who have joined this group, and now there's about two dozen people, um, 
who are doing different kinds of work within the group. One of the hardest things is to publicly um, talk about it. And whether that's with friends or family or with um, just Facebook postings or Instagram postings. Um, but to visibly witness <laughs> their own racism, their own white supremacy, and to be an example, um, the less blame, the less finger pointing, the better. And so I hope that they're able to become comfortable enough having these conversations in the group that they can go outside the group and have those conversations. But what Byron was talking about with desegregating our own lives has been a topic of these groups since the beginning, because we all live, we, I mean the people in the group, <laughs> um, and not all of us are white Caucasian people, um, in more affluent areas. We live with very few um, integrations of race in our neighborhoods with black and brown people. And Byron often asks, if we were going to go to one of those spaces, would we even know exactly where to go? And so the next step after being able to have these conversations with people we care about to open up these paths of connection is to make those steps into desegregating our life in some way. I, if that's the workplace, if it's schools, if it's where you go out to eat when we're able to do that again. Um, for me, it's going to be about where I live. So I, I think my hope, my hope is that people start to think about how they can make those changes in their life. So as there's been this explosion of um, book clubs and discussions around race with everything that's been going on in the world, there's also been an equal amount of criticism around um, the dubious nature of you know, entitled liberal white people having a book club. And is it enough? Is it actually gonna, gonna make any change? And it sounds, Wendy, from what you've said that the, the intent is this book club is gonna be the driver uh, that opens up their minds to then go and make some of that change. But I'm curious what you say about the criticisms that you know, these, these entitled white liberals um, are doing this to make themselves feel better. I think that can be a valid criticism and this is a practice. What we're learning has to be a practice and so it's got to be today and then we have to wake up and it has to be tomorrow and the next day and without that action, without that evidence or receipts, um, I think the criticism is valid and you don't build trust unless you're able to have a preponderance of evidence. If people can't look at your actions and see a change. So reading the books is a 
very important first step, understanding the concepts, gaining the vocabulary, being able to have those conversations in the group and then outside of the group. Those are, those are important steps. And I don't think you can skip them. <laughs> but if you stop there, um, things won't change in this country, in this world. And my hope is that we can, that we can influence enough people to actually um, practice this every day. Byron, what's your take on that in terms of, you know, is reading a book enough? What else do people need to do? Um, let me come at this from absolutely every different side. Because <laughs> I, I do think it's important. Um, I think what the books can do is they can give you a way to feel like you're okay. In the same way that if you look at uh, the murder of a man in Minneapolis and you say, I'm against that, that's bad, as a way of saying that you're one of the good people, right? But you still pay your taxes and those taxes still go towards policing of somebody wherever you are, right? Then all you've done is sort of made yourself feel better. I also want that criticism to be heard because I want pressure on people who are reading the books. I want them to be a little uncomfortable. I want them to think about whether or not this is enough. Uh, I think it's Ruth Gilmore, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, that talks about the difference between the politics of style and the politics of life and death. And the books can be a style that keeps you out, keeps you distant from the fact that there are people on the streets of cities in this country today who are fighting for their lives, who, are, who have buried family members, who are simply trying to exist. And so there's no question, no question it can be that. I've also had a group of people after an incident at my daughter's school, a racial incident, um, a bunch of parents came together and we're all talking maybe 15, 20 of us. It's like, well, what kind, of, what kind of group do we want to create to sort of combat this? It was like, do we want to be an activist group? There wasn't any love for that. Uh, do we want to pressure the admit? No, no, we don't want to do that. And then somebody said, how about a book club? And then it was like, oh yeah, let's, let's do that. And so there's no doubt this can be a way of not doing anything. However, what we're talking about with the working groups is not just reading a book, but examining your own life. You can do that with a book. You can do that with a group. You can do that in any number of ways. But the idea is to situate yourself in the racial context from the beginning. That work is not a book club. And by the way, clubs like this have had quite a history. There were book clubs in Russia prior to their revolution that did some pretty serious things as book clubs. There were banquets in France before the uh, July monarchy and the revolutions of 1848. And they're just sitting around having dinner and drinks. And they overthrew a monarchy through that. These book clubs can sound innocuous because of that label book club. But that doesn't mean that there's not a revolution going on inside. So the question's not whether the book clubs, you know, as a moniker is enough. 
are you doing the work inside or are you not doing the work inside? That's the question. And so for people who want to uh, start this work, either start their own club or um, do the work on their own, what advice do you have for them? And then also what advice do you have for the, the black people throughout the world who are getting inundated with questions and requests from the random white person who happens to run across them? I mean, there's a meme on Facebook now about the woman who, who talked to her you know, washing machine repairman and he, was, he you know, took on that burden and spent a tremendous amount of time talking with her and you know, that's really changed his life. But, you know, he was kind of thrust into that and may not, you know, that may not be the, the gig for everybody. So what's your advice for, for people, non-Black people who want to get started in this work and for Black people who are being inundated? If I could take them backwards. Um, for the white people that are asking these questions of Black people around them, please, please ask yourself, what are the Black people getting out of it? You know, like, what is he getting? And maybe he is getting something out of it. You know, um, I would like him to be getting cash out of it. I would like him to be getting opportunity out of it. I would like him, his kids to have scholarships, like, because I know what you're getting out of it. Because, you know, you're trying to figure things out. You're trying to feel better, not have your kids looking at you like, wow, you know, that sort of non-racial neutral position of yours doesn't look so good. And why are we in this neighborhood? Um, I don't know what he's getting out of it. And so you have to think about what somebody else is getting out of it. And by the way, if they are on their job and it's a job where you can fire them, but they can't fire you, there's a power differential there. Like you have got to be aware of the power differential um, when those things are happening. Now, allow me to contradict myself as gracefully as possible. I think these these groups are a lot easier when there is a non-white person in there that can bring a non-white perspective. So you may have a black friend who will who has spent their whole lives accommodating you and that's what they do that perspective is not as helpful it helps to have somebody in there especially in the first few sessions who can sort of guide you to how you hide these things from yourselves and i have met white people that can do that work without question but it helps to have somebody like that in there the second thing is there are people who build themselves by taking other people down. You have to be very careful of such people in these groups. This can be very um, damaging. And so having said those things, let me just say one more thing. You have to remind yourself what this is about. You have to remind yourself why you're doing this. You have to think about the problems that black and brown people face in this country and think about the life and death of it. So that as you're looking at the things in your own life, you're making a connection ultimately to those things. But it helps you keep in mind what's important. And it's not your pride and it's not your ego and it's not how you see yourself, right? We are crushing people in this country right now. We are doing this work 
to take some of the weight off of them. That may help people maintain a perspective. Wendy, for, for other people who are like you in the world and, and uh, have the ambition to help others make the changes that are necessary, what's your advice for them as they launch on this journey, not just in their lives, but helping others down that path as well? I think a few of... Um... I've been following a lot of um, black women on Instagram who have been teaching me quite a bit. Almost all of them talk about the love that you need to approach any of this. And so I, the most important part is to bring love to this conversation with yourself. Um, there are a lot of resources. We've mentioned a couple. Um, our group has worked with um, several books and I think, um, Byron's perspective has um, been an umbrella over all of it. It's kind of guided uh, how we digest all of that information. Um, but building a trusted container, a trusted space for you to have those conversations in and having a structure. <laughs> I think the, the part of the work that's um, hard is finding the time to actually uh, going inside yourself and addressing each of these concepts and how it applies to your life experience and um, finding the hidden parts. Byron mentioned this earlier and it's shocking how you can be prompted to think about something and come up with nothing. And then a couple of months later, like, Oh yeah, I did that. Or I said that, or I had that experience or, Oh wow. Of course I forgot that because that really was awful. I can't believe I did that or said that. Um, <clears throat> so giving your space, yourself space to have that time with, with whatever of these resources that you want to use. Um, to do this work. At the beginning of our discussion, you talked about um, the impact and the influence of shame. What do you say to people, either those who are going through your group or those who are listening to how to deal with that sense of shame as they go through this work? I think it's an inevitable part of the work. And it's been an important part to work through so that I can continue the journey to continue to learn more. And the first step of this is to realize that no one is perfect. Um, and everything I learned about shame, I learned from one of the most um, wise researchers about the subject, Brene Brown, and she talks about shame gremlins. And she says that the, I'm paraphrasing, forgive me. <laughs> she says that the way to release the shame is to speak it. And so in the sharing of how you were racist, how it expressed itself, what in whatever action or words in your past, that action actually releases the shame 
allowing yourself to be human and less than perfect in that moment. I think the next step is about accountability, is about owning it. And once we're able to own what we've done, we can make the decisions to apologize, to be remorseful to the people that we hurt, and we can make plans for how to respond differently in the future. And so I think about the shame gremlins of doing this work, and there have been many. <laughs> um, but once you talk about them, they're not running around inside you anymore. They're released. And so the group helps with that process. And I think that's a really interesting sort of twist on this, right? Because, uh, you know, often we have to kind of explain why somebody would give up privilege. And that word is a bit of a misnomer in just the way Wendy described, right? Because out of privilege is out of shame. This is not just a racial discussion. There's a convergence of people who have been talking about very similar things using somewhat different language. But Dr. Brown's language is not far away from the language we're talking about here. There's a reason to step out of shame. There's a reason to step out of privilege. There is something better on the other side. Wendy, Byron, I want to thank you both for the, the pioneering work that, uh, that you have been doing and continue to do. And uh, I'm excited about talking with some of the folks who've been going through the, the work groups, Wendy, that you set up and Byron, that you've been talking with, to get their perspectives on the experience um, and, and what changes they have made along the way as a, a process of that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Out of Privilege podcast. Please subscribe on your podcast platform or sign up on outofprivilege.com to get updated on new episodes when they're available. Let us know what you think and feel free to share on social media.